In this talk, I am going to tell you about the vernacular literatures as a source of uh, history. I will tell you about the, how the historians have uh, erred in the past by reducing the vernacular text as uh, mythical stories. Historians have uh, often argued that the vernacular literatures are ahistorical, but all the vernacular literatures cannot be clubbed together into a single homogeneous category. I will explain you with an example of a vernacular literature which was written in the 16th century by Malik Muhammad Jayasi, which is known as Padmavat. Mohandas uh, Gandhi, uh, in his uh, Hindu Swaraj, uh, which he wrote in 1909, he has written in that uh, book that a nation which has no history is a happy nation. He in fact questioned that if history is all about the ways kings played and uh, how they became enemies and how and where they invaded or murdered one another, then the world would have perished. Gandhi possibly envisaged that the way of understanding history would not be alike worldwide and uh, each part of the world might have had its own way of writing and recording history. Gandhi, when he's saying all this, was basically raking up a larger historiographical question. There is no debate on the issue that uh, colonialism brought major changes in India. But we may not know how colonialism changed if we do not know what was there to be changed. And among many, many, many things uh, that was there to be changed, one of the elements was the practice and tradition of writing and understanding history. And one of the first things that the British actually changed was in the field of scholarship. And this they were able to do successfully by propagating the presumed uniqueness of the European rationality. Even in the historical writings, the rational causation and the scientific methodology was always looked for. As a result, the whole concept of interpretation based on facts actually came up. This actually in turn gave birth to the concept of objective and subjective and they were actually considered as dichotomous to each other. Now following the line of facts as history, uh, in fact, with this, this uh, fact as history was advocated by uh, Leopold uh, Ranke, who was a 
philosopher, scientist, or social scientist of the 19th century. He, in fact, uh, defined that what are the sources of history. And he introduced this idea of primary sources or in fact he said that what actually happened or how things actually were, all this are very important when we write history. There is one uh, uh, sociologist of uh, the 20th century, early 20th century, Walter Benjamin. He at one place wrote that uh, this concept of Ranke was one of the strongest narcotic of the 19th century. In the context of uh, medieval India, we have seen that uh, an early modern India also, the court chronicles, uh, the official documents, coinages, inscriptions, the you know excavated items, these were only considered as sources of history and rest other were branded as a historical. So, I am talking about the vernacular literatures. So, what has happened that uh, when Ranke was talking about the given sources, the defined sources of history which actually peeped into the, the writing of history on India and by the Indian historians also. The vernacular literature was basically a casualty in this process. So, the, for the colonial modern, the vernacular histories did not fit well into the schemes of historical sources. The vernaculars were regarded as uh, mythical and distorted as I mentioned earlier. After independence also, this Indian historiography was dominated by, as you know, that uh, the economic scholars, the uh, Marxist historians, and their greatest contribution has been the restructuring of the periodization of Indian history, as you know. And the other major contribution was in terms of the thrust that they gave on the, uh, the thrust I am talking about, the, the emphasis that they gave on economic history. So, it was uh, very different from the earlier political histories. Now, the fault of the Indian Marxist scholarship was not in terms of the way they wrote history. It was one of the, it is one of the finest contribution to the Indian historiography. But what has happened is that they have fallen in the trap of Eurocentric discourse. And it all began with the questioning of periodization of Indian history as Indian scholars questioned the erstwhile Hindu, Muslim and the British period and then the economic history turned out to be the history of exploiters and exploited. Uh, for example, the state as exploiter of revenue and the peasantry as, explo as, as exploited. So, Indian Marxist scholars although modified Rankian positivism, but it inherited its basic premise of dichotomy between an objective history and a subjective history. Now, the modification 
that I'm talking about was only to the extent that the economic history became the thrust. So this emphasis on economic history disallowed the historians to use vernacular literatures as source of history. The discourses of the narratives in vernaculars or the vernacular literatures were bereft of economic data. So such narratives were not considered useful for the history writing. For the economic interpretation of history, the Persian court chronicles the, and the official documents or for that matter the coinages. These were, these were, you know, used as the main source. Now, as a result of this, there was two-dimensional progression. Progression in, uh, you know, Indian historiography, especially in medieval and early modern period of history. The history of uh, medieval and early modern India remained predominantly the history of Delhi Sultanate and Mughal India, number one. And the regions and their histories were marginalized in the process. History of the common man was never explored. And secondly, the medieval historiography were perceived as a domain of the scholars who were capable of reading and understanding Persian. So the huge amount of literature in Sanskrit, the simplified Sanskrit that I'm talking about, and the vernaculars of medieval and early modern period belonging to outside the Persianate culture, it remained completely unscrutinized. So uh, what has happened also as a result of this kind of progression that the medieval Indian history remained state-centric and for that matter in even the early modern period of history. There are different types of uh, vernacular literatures. We have Katha Kavyas, then we have Prabandha Kavyas and then you have the Premakhyans. Uh, <clears throat> the Katha Kavyas, a uh, few of the examples of Katha Kavyas are like uh, Panchatantra or uh, the Katha Sarit Sagar. Uh, these are basically uh, unrealistic stories. But then you have uh, another genre called the Prabandha Kavyas. They were written for the elite class and the civil society, especially the elites among the common people. And contrary to the Katha Kavya, which was you know, all in which all the characters were purely mythicals. The Prabandha Kavyas were based on the real characters. Though the mythical and unnatural stories were there in the Prabandha Kavyas also, but they were not so dominant. Even though uh, Prabandha Kavyas are also dramatic, but they are ingrained in the main stories. In fact, uh, there is always an intended message when you read the Prabandha Kavyas and in fact there is a logical end to the stories. When I am 
saying logical end i'm talking about the pers the you know what the poet actually wants to send a message what does the poet want to say all this is evident when you read prabandha kavya stories so these prabandha kavyas uh, uh, one of the uh, very beautiful example of prabandha kavyas is uh, uh, kanadet prabandh there are many other prabandha kavyas like you have pratap rudra charitam which was uh, written in the uh, written uh, uh, about a ruler the kakatiya ruler pratap rudra then you have uh, prithviraj prithviraj raso which was written by chand bardai hamir mahakavya is another one which is a beautiful uh, prabandha kavya which is about a ranthambor uh, ruler uh but then uh, you know these uh, prabandha kavyas have multi dimensional uh, you know stories they are broad stories but then there is another genre uh, which is very much similar to the prabandha kavyas and that's called the prema khyans these prema khyans are full of romantic episodes Uh, here also the heroes the main characters of the stories are real characters and uh, you have uh, like the prabandha kavyas you have twists and turns at various points uh, which makes uh, the stories very entertaining because these were stories which were actually told to the audience now during uh, you know it all, it all started uh, uh in the uh later half of the first millennium uh when you know uh, that is in the in fact it uh, the most of the vernacular literatures that you find which became popular is of the second millennium so uh, in fact uh, sheldon pollock has uh, written that the uh, you know the millennium the first millennium uh, the was uh, dominate largely dominated by the language of the elites the sanskrit uh but then uh, you know it is in the second millennium the uh, the vernacular literatures became uh, popular in the uh, to the extent that even the you know persian literates like amir khusro and uh, malik mohammad jaisi for that matter he they started writing in uh, avadhi or the vernaculars so it is the in this new trend of literature that uh, various vernaculars and simplified sanskrit began to take a very popular shape uh they were uh, now being written to be transmitted as knowledge in oral 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 form to the common man and precisely because of this that we tend to get the impression of hyperbole in the text and this was done with the intention of keeping the audience interested in this form of media so we have a uh, uh, very interesting prema khyans that uh, uh, there are four main ones um, uh, which are known to us one is uh, the earliest one is chandayan which was written by Maulana Daud in 1379 then you have Mrigavati 
which was uh, written by Kutban in 1503. And then you have uh, Padmavat, which was written by Malik Muhammad Jaisi in 1540. Madhumalti is another interesting uh, vernacular literature, which was written by Manjan Rajgiri in 1545. In the earlier uh, talks, I, I have often been talking about the absence of regional histories in uh, medieval period or for that matter early modern period. Now this uh, absence of regional history is uh, both the cause and result of uh, medieval Indian scholars or for that matter early modern scholars and their aversion to non-Persian vernacular literatures. Recent studies uh, over a decade uh, and a half have uh, proved that they, you know, they, uh, by, you know, by uh, intensive and careful reading of the vernacular literatures and Sanskrit texts, we may be able to identify some uh, you know, different distinct historical developments. Now, the narratives in these sources give the picture of indigenous and local traditions and practices which uh, could be beyond the confines of uh, military and administrative activities of uh, the, you know, the sultans of uh, Delhi Sultanate of the emperors of the Mughal Empire and their officers and also the economy more than uh, my if we if we don't look for facts as we look in the persian chronicles this these vernacular literatures could be used as a very important source for writing histories so more than uh, mining the facts and empirical details we can study the uh, specificities in the both the Prabandha genres and the Premakhyans. Uh, in fact, uh, more than the content of the text, uh, the vernacular's framing of language and the style, these, these could be studied in historical perspective. And this can be used as, uh, as an important way of uh, writing histories of uh, medieval and early modern period. Now, few of the, uh, few of the way we can uh, look at these vernacular literatures are by raising certain questions like uh, why the text was written in a, pop, in a particular vernacular, uh, both uh, in terms of time and also in terms of space, where exactly it was written, in which particular period it was written, right? So this, this becomes a very important uh, subject of inquiry for us as historians when we read vernacular literatures. Similarly, uh, what is the intention of the poet or the author of that vernacular literature when we read the, a particular vernacular? What is the indirect message that the poet tries to send but which he leaves unsaid? You know? This can be a very important subject of uh, inquiry for us as historians. What kind of different or the uh, you know a different way of uh, uh, 
understanding history could be uh, when we read vernacular literatures like what kind of difference do we observe in terms of details uh, between contemporary Persian chronicles and the the Premakhyans or for that matter the Prabandakavyas. For example, the very uh, you know absence of uh, certain you know certain uh, facts written in a uh, few of the vernacular literatures uh, which in fact remain in the popular memories of the people. For example, um, uh, you know the very absence of the invasion of Somnath. Take, the, take that example by Mahmud Gajna, which is very, as you know, very popular in the, uh, which, which is in fact today current in the popular memory, in people's memory. So, in the narrative of, um, if you read few of the Prabandhas like Kanadet Prabandha, you will find this proves that uh, Mahmud's invasion was not that much significant when the particular Prabandha Kavya was written. The, I'm talking about the Kanadet Prabandha. So the these vernacular literatures help us assess the impact of the the presence of political dispensation, the dominant political dispensations that we know about. Similarly, uh, uh, there are you know, various vernacular literatures uh, which can be studied uh, in the form of its literary culture. Now, this way of uh, studying a particular literature is actually a paradigm shift away from uh, the uh, positive, positivistic reading that we do of the various sources such as quote chronicles or the Persian quote chronicles and literatures. So through such studies we can reconstruct the historical consciousness of you know medieval and early modern societies. So instead of uh, measuring a text uh, against some absolute standard of uh, veracity and the amount of empirical data, uh, we need to approach the vernacular literature as a cultural products of its own time. So culling all the texts in vernacular by branding it a historical on the ground of uncritical description of the kings and frequent mythological illusions, it, it would be wrong. Similarly, it would also be wrong to characterize uh, the modern translator's characterization of the text as some kind of mythical stories or in, in, in many accounts or for many vernacular literatures. Uh, uh, it is often said that these are, uh, you know, some kind of patriotic say, saga. Now, Sheldon Pollock uh, would argue that the choice of language for the literary text production, uh, it, it implied that the, the, that uh, affiliating with, uh, with socio-textual community of some kind 
the acts of uh, reading or performing or even hearing and the circulation of these literary texts are very important for any literary text or any vernacular literature that we are reading. So, if we take the example of uh, Padmavat, uh, this shows that uh, there was some kind of community that uh, the poet Malik Muhammad Jaisi was actually referring to. It was being recited in front of uh, uh, a sociolinguistic, uh, sociotextual community who with, and the language used was actually comprehensible to the local community.